Well, as I said, we are uh, in a new series called My Story is His Story. You have that outlined in your bulletin. We're looking at biblical uh, characters that God has used and changed their story for His glory. And as we discovered specifically last week, God tells the story, warts and all. The Bible does not hold back. Uh, it does not hold back the facts that uh, they had issues but God still uses them in spite of their issues. And the person we are looking at today is no different. It's just that we don't normally see him with having a lot of issues. I mean, we usually see David as being this, you know, King David, or he's this, this giant killer of Goliath. That's giant killer David. Uh, in fact, Michelangelo's statue of David is one of the uh, most recognizable, larger-than-life, kind of perfect sculptures. It's an artistic creation of art, one of the most perfect that the world knows today, kind of this, this ripped torso and, and tall, if you've ever been to Florence and seen this, 14, 15 uh, feet high, just this massive perfection of, of marble. Although that's not exactly the biblical picture that the Bible paints of David, especially early on in his life, before he was this giant killer, before he was this, you know, King David, kind of this idea, before he was a star, what was his life like then, before he maybe, you know, was the famous David? Well, if you've been in um, supermarkets or gone by magazine stands, you know that commonly our culture likes to see kind of these before and after pictures. Um, websites have these as well. Um, and so I thought we'd play a little game today of, of uh, before they were a star, all right? So kind of before and after pictures. You up for a game on this? Okay. All right. How about we show a picture here and you tell me who this person is, okay? It'll be a famous person, so you'll recognize who they are, but maybe not in their childhood years. So let's go for the first one here. Uh, anybody know who this uh, cute little boy is? Yeah, Barack Obama. Good call on that. That is President Barack Obama. Uh, how about the next one we have here? Ah, who is this uh, little boy? Yeah, good call. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is right there. Okay, that's who he was before and after. Uh, this is an interesting one. Harrison Ford. Okay, Mr. Indiana Jones himself. Yeah. How about, uh, how about this girl? Yeah, Sandra Bullock. If you don't know your pop culture, just voted, I think. Uh, People Magazine, most beautiful woman of the year. Um, I think it was the oldest woman to be voted for that. So there's hope for some of us older people, right? Uh, how about this one? How about this one? Yeah, Mick Jagger. The 8 o'clock service really got that one. They, they, they knew that person right there. Don't tell them I said that, okay? All right. How about this one right here? Who's that? No? 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 Who? No? Buster Posey. All right, balcony. You got that one. Good. How about this next one here? Who's that? Clayton Kershaw. Okay. You can't show a giant picture without having a Dodger picture up there as well. Okay. So let's go both sides on that. Clayton Kershaw. All right. How about this next one here? Who's that? Did I hear it? Hillary, yes. Hillary Rodham. Hillary Rodham Clinton, absolutely. Uh, how about this next one here? Anybody recognize him? Yeah, very good. George Clooney. 
That is George Clooney before he was a star. How about this ne- next one that we have here? Who's that? That, yes, that is me. Uh, that is me right there. Yeah, actually, actually, do you want to see what I look like? A uh, little younger years, kind of teenage years when I was just buffed and chiseled. Go ahead. Show, show, show this next beer. That's, that's me right there. How do you like that? <laughs> Looks just like me. Just me. <laughs> Not exactly, right? Not exactly. Well, the life of David is a uh, fascinating life because he wasn't always this, this perfect chiseled, can we get that picture off the screen, please? <laughs> perfect, chiseled, polished, you know, marble figure. In fact, he was, he was far from it. And while a lot, probably even the most is written about the life of David in the Old Testament, that is uh, one character that is written the most about is David, more than any other character, he is most remembered as um, a, a shepherd, uh, a poet in the Psalms that he wrote, uh, a giant killer with, with uh, Goliath, king of, of Israel, is remembered as an ancestor of Jesus. However, he was also a betrayer, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, right? Sometimes we don't like to think about those things. I mean, I'd rather be much more remembered for the first list that I talked about with David, but, but he also came into those qualities of the second, many of which I am much more bent to. But he's still remembered, and he's still respected as a man after God's own heart. And let me tell you a little bit more about David's story, because many scholars believe that while David was described as being um, a, a fine appearance and handsome features, he was also described as being ruddy, which means it's a Hebrew word for red. And so David, some scholars believe, could have had flaming red hair, which no offense to any of you have red hair now, but that was an oddity in the Hebrew culture. I mean, that, that, that would look very, very strange in the biblical days. And this oddity is kind of strengthened by the thought and, and the fact that, and we'll see this here today, David was really the family reject in many ways, and he was the runt of the litter. And so today we're going to look at his life, kind of this life before he was a star. And we're going to explore that aspect of him. Because we can relate to this David. I mean, many of us know David's story and, you know, David the king, David the giant killer, all those types of things. But if you've ever felt left out or kind of the ugly duckling or mistreated in life or mislabeled or labeled in an odd way or alienated from your family or maybe you've regretted something in your past, then you have company with David. But what's really awesome is how God was able to use his story and say, okay, David, I'm going to take your history. I'm going to take your past. I'm going to turn it into my story. Your history is now going to be history, and we're going to remember you for what you became, not as much for what you were. And so let me share with you the story of David. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The story begins about 3,000 years ago. 
after God has rejected Saul as king of Israel and is about to tell who the new king is going to be. And so if you're not familiar kind of with this time frame, um, judges were in leadership over Israel. Samson was a judge right about this time. And um, the people asked for a king. All the other countries had a king. God says, you don't want a king. The Israelite says, we want a king. God says, you don't want a king. Uh, the Israelite said, yes, we want a king. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And it was not a good experience. Which, let me just give you a little encouragement on that. The more we wrestle with God, when we know his plan, when we know his desire, when we know his kind of, kind of how he lays things out for us to go, what to walk in, the more we wrestle with that, even though God may sometimes grant us those things, can be very, very difficult days. And the Israelites experience this with Saul. And so he has to remove Saul from this, but he does not do it yet. God says, I, I'm still going to let you have a king. But it's not going to be Saul. It's going to be a new king. And so he tells the priest Samuel to go. And in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 and then 3, he says, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way, for I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And later at the end of verse 3, it says, You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Now, in Old Testament times, a king was anointed by being poured on his head with oil. And um, usually this was done in a public setting, which was at the beginning of their reign. But this one was done at a private setting, which tells us that he was to be a future king. Not king yet, but a future king. And so Samuel is told the next king will be one of Jesse's children, of which Jesse had ten children. He had eight boys and two girls. And uh, knowing that the girls couldn't be considered for the throne, Jesse lines up all of his boys in front of Samuel. Minus one. David didn't even make the lineup. David just is left out with the girls. Go, go, David, just, just play with the girls. Just be on your way. You can do other things. You don't need to come to this ceremony of such. We're not even considering you. In fact, even Samuel, it says in verse 6 of chapter 16, when he lines up in front of these seven, he says, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Surely he is in this place. Let's go down. And so Samuel goes down the line. Lifting the horn of oil each time he passes by the boys, and yet he's told no. No, 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 and no. And it surprises him. So much so, he turns around and looks at Jesse, and he says in verse 11, he says, are these all your sons? And Jesse says, well, you know, there's, the, there's the, the, the youngest, but you don't want him. He doesn't belong here. He's not even in this lineup. He's just out tending sheep. He's just taking care of some menial kind of things. Samuel says, go get him. We're not even going to sit down until he arrives here because he may be the one. I mean, you talk about some obstacles that David is needing to overcome here. You talk about feeling unqualified for something. You talk about being a nobody that nobody knew. He couldn't even crack the, the lineup with his brothers. Jesse, his father, didn't even think he belonged to that. In fact, on your outline, I wrote down here, obstacles faced by David. Let me, let me give you just a few. 
First one in verse 11 is this hurtful labeling that he has to endure. When Jesse said that, well, you know, there's the youngest, the word for youngest is a Hebrew word, hakatan. And that word means, and it implies, insignificant or little or kind of dinky. In fact, the word I had you write down in your outline there is the family runt. That's what the word hakatan in Hebrew implies. You're just kind of insignificant. You really don't count. You're little. You're dinky. Um, You're kind of the family runt. You really don't belong in this kind of a lineup. He's the youngest of ten. There's eight boys. There's two girls. Um, Didn't even make the lineup. In fact, Jesse never even uses his name. He just calls him Hakatan. He doesn't say, well, there's David. He says, well, there's Hakatan. And this is probably not the first time he does this either. And you have to believe that those names stuck, right? Well, you're, you're just the little one. You're just, you're just the runt of the family. You're just the insignificant. You're just kind of the weakling of the clan. I mean, in the same way, I would guess that some names that you have been called in your life have probably stuck, right? And maybe you've been called fatso or four eyes or or stupid or why can't you be more like the other boys why, why can't you be like you know your 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 sisters um or maybe even i wish you were never born i was speaking to a group of fourth or eighth graders a number of months ago and as i was sharing with them some of those thoughts and i used some of those words you could just see their eyes go down to the floor they didn't even want my eye contact with me because they had experienced it they knew it. They didn't want to have to think about that. Yeah, they had been belittled. Maybe it was someone on the playground. Maybe it was an adult. Maybe even it was one of their parents. Those words stick. And sometimes they stick for a lifetime. We've been there. David was in the midst of this. Some, some hurtful labeling on his life. Let me give you a second kind of obstacle that David faced. And that was probably a, a sense of parental alienation. Parental alienation. What do you mean by that, Pastor Brad? Well, we'll get this. The Secretary of State is coming to your house to give one of your sons a full ride to Harvard scholarship. He's hopefully going to give him now the highest job in the land. You get all the kids washed up. You get them all looking good. You get them dressed up. You stand them before the Secretary of State except for one who you have on some stupid errand down to Manteca. I mean, things were not exactly tight between David and his dad. In fact, you can look at kind of David's life and read some of his thoughts and his emotions in his diary. Look at what it says here out of Psalm 27, verse 10. This is David talking when he says, My father and my mother have forsaken me. I think a lot of us can identify with David, that David, from what we've gone through some point in our past. Okay, let me give you another one, family ridicule. Not just, you know, from his parents, but what about from his brothers and, and, and sister? It says Jesse um, already didn't want him to be in the lineup. We talked about that. He's just saying, you know, David, just go out and just watch the sheep. Take care of yourself. You'll be fine. But get this. After David is anointed as king, 
the, uh, the brothers are out at the battle line where they're fighting Goliath, and David gets to go if he plays cheese delivery boy. Remember this part of the story? Okay, maybe you've missed this. Look at verse 17 and 18 of uh, 1 Samuel 17 now. So one chapter over, 17 and 18. It says, Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this epah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are doing and bring back some assurance of them. In other words, I just want to see how your brothers are doing to make sure they're doing okay. Here, David, you can go up to the front lines if you deliver this cheese. Here, just, just, just you know, grab the Gouda and go. Just, just, just be on your way there, David. Just be a cheese delivery boy, and you can, um, you, know, you can go up to the front lines. And when David drops off the cheese, he sneaks out to the battle lines, and his brothers are not too happy about this. Look at what they say in verses 20, uh, 28 and 29. Then Eliab, David's oldest brother, when he heard him speaking to the men, he burned with anger and said, and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know you are conceited, you are, how conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You came down just to see us get slaughtered, David. You know that, that, that Goliath has been taunting us, and we're cowardly in this, and you just want to see what's going on. You just want to see it for your amusement, don't you, David? Look at what David writes in Psalm 69, verse 8. I don't think this was an isolated incident. He says, I'm estranged from my brothers. Had some difficult family situations going on there. Some of us have had difficult family situations, tough times, maybe with parents or maybe grandparents or maybe step-parents or maybe stepsisters or brothers. Or It doesn't always fit really easily together. We see David on this polished kind of, you know, King David kind of person, but before he was there, not difficult days. Let me go one more with you. How about the regretful ancestry? Regretful ancestry. It says in Deuteronomy 23, it talks about being a Moabite and and the curse that is there. David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. And the Moabites were some of the most despised minority in all of ancient Israel because they didn't help the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. In fact, they not only didn't help them, they were trying to get a curse to be upon them. In fact, I talked about this last week, if you were here, David's great-great-grandmother, you remember who it was, what we talked about last week, who was that? Rahab, she was, this is Rahab, the prostitute Rahab. Now, there's something you don't always think about and hear about and brag about, oh yeah, look at who my great-great-grandmother was. No, David probably kind of wanted to shove that aside and let that kind of be in his past, but regretful ancestry, it was all there. Think about what this means for you. I mean, maybe some of you are in here today and uh, your family ancestry kind of embarrasses you. Maybe you come from a long line of alcoholics and everybody kind of jokes about it at family reunions and yet now you are the first Christian and you want to do things differently. It's tough. It is not easy. Or maybe your father cheated on your mother. Or maybe your, you know, your grandfather on his wife did the same sort of thing. Or aunts and uncles. And it's in the family. And you just kind of feel like, well, you know what? It's in my genes. And, and I'm destined for that kind of a thing as well. 
Or maybe you, um, you stand out kind of racially. Wherever you go, David, kind of this red-headed Moabite, is right there with you. I mean, look at the strikes that he has against him. Look back at that list that we just made there. He's being labeled. He uh, has parental alienation, family ridicule, poor ancestry. You add all these up and all the sins that God knew David was going to do, and God puts them all together, and then he says, perfect. David, you're the one. You are the chosen. You are the anointed. David, you're the one that I want to serve as king and leader of my people. I mean, look at the verse there. And it's Samuel 16, verse 12. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the one I want to lead my people. The kid who nobody chose, the kid who did not even make the line up, wasn't even on the team, let alone get into the game. Now he's the star pitcher. Now he's the quarterback that everyone is relying upon. Then he becomes David that we know. You know, about 30-some years ago... um, some of you might recognize the name, Dr. Ian Jackson, was a plastic surgeon who flew from Scotland into Peru for a short-term mission trip. He would often lead these trips with groups of doctors who would um, go into these countries and do minor plastic surgeries on children and tribesmen and natives who needed them to improve their facial features or a few cosmetic types of things or things that they can function better within their society. Well, on one of his stays within Peru, some of the nuns, local nuns, um, came from the convent with this two-and-a-half-year-old boy whom Dr. Jackson said was the most malformed child he had ever met within the face. I mean, it took even his breath away to see how misformed and malformed he, he was. Apparently, in fetal development, the little boy's nasal cavity kind of caved in, and there was just this huge hole in the midst of his face. No, no nose, no cheekbones, no upper teeth, just kind of this hole that was kind of caved in around some skin right there in the middle of his face. And, and Dr. Jackson saw the child, just kind of shook his head and said to the nuns, said, you know what, I'm sorry, um, there's not a lot we can do. The Peruvian sisters, they explained that this little baby was abandoned at birth. It was seen by its parents, and it was dropped off in the steps of the convent, and they had been caring for it for a couple of years. Dr. Jackson said, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do for him here. Maybe, perhaps, if I was back in Great Britain, I could help him, but I can't do anything here. I, I, I'm sorry. A few weeks later, he's at home in Glasgow, and uh, Dr. Jackson gets a phone call. And on the other line, there's a voice that says, on a plane right now is the Peruvian Indian boy. The sisters raised enough money to send him to you. Apparently, they had taken his offhand comment as an offer to have him come over to where he lived. So Dr. Jackson had to rush to the Heathrow Airport, not have any time to find housing. He decides to have the little boy stay with him at his house. And then a pathetic thing happened. As the little boy walked into Dr. Jackson's house, he walked past a mirror. And he saw himself for the very first time. And it scared him. 
And so he runs and he, and he dives under the bed in Dr. Jackson's bedroom and he hides under there and he begins to cry. And Dr. Jackson crawls under the bed as well. And he speaks Spanish to him and he says, it's okay, it's okay. I'm going to fix you. I'll get you right. It's okay. The little boy looks up at Dr. Jackson and says, can I have a nose like all the other boys? Dr. Jackson says, yeah, you bet. I'll, I'll get you a nose. The little boy says, can I have a really big nose? <laughs> Dr. Jackson says, I'll get you the biggest nose you want. Well, the operations begin, and after six months, they're just kind of getting started with everything for the numerous operations that they know they have to do. When the British government sends notice that the little boy's immigration status was up, and he was going to have to go back to Peru. And so Dr. Jackson and his wife adopted the little boy as their own child. And over the years that followed, 80 operations later, the little boy um, grows and develops into a young man. In fact, went to a prestigious university there in Great Britain and uh, really made something of his life. And he is, he is interviewed as this young man. Um, through tears, he tells an interviewer, he says, My father is the most amazing man I know. My father who took me from nowhere and gave me a name, gave me a face. He gave me a future. He went on to say that every step of the way, my confidence and my trust grew in my father. And what's interesting about this is, uh, do you know the name that Dr. Jackson and his wife gave that little boy? The name they gave him was David. Because they knew that his story paralleled the story of David in the Bible. And it parallels our story as well. God's saying, I want to give you a future. I want to give you a face. I want to give you a look. I want to give you a name. I want you, I want to give you my love. I mean, look at some of what God said to David as David is writing out these psalms. Look at Psalm 89. God says this. says, I have found David my servant. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God. I will appoint him to be my firstborn. I will maintain my love to him forever. I will establish his line forever. God is choosing David. David, the tenth of tenth, the family runt, the insignificant, the one who's just kind of left out into the field to do his own thing. God says, no, you're the one. You're the choice, chosen. You're the anointed. Come, come. You say, well, you know what? That you know, makes a great story for some 3,000 years ago. That really doesn't happen again today. Absolutely it happens today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where it says in 27, 28, but God chose the foolish things of the world. God chose the weak things. He chose the lowly, the things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not. That's who God chooses. God chooses us as people to come and be a part of his family. God gives us a face. God gives us a future. God takes our past and says, your past is not your past. It's now mine. I will take it from here. Your history is history. Your history is now my story. Let me use you. See, the words that Samuel received as he was getting ready to anoint the next king were these words. Look at these in verse 7 of chapter 16. It says, 
the Lord said to Samuel as he's going and trying to, you know, anoint, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? He looks at the the heart. And how often have we forgotten that in 2015? As we look to, you know, beautiful stars and beautiful leaders, even someone like David and what he had to come through, he was not this great leader because of what he did. He was because he had a heart. And the Bible says that as Saul, the current king was Saul, and he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in this nation. And so obviously Samuel was coming here looking for this same kind of leader. This is what I'm looking for. And God says, uh-uh, no way. Don't look to his outward appearance. Don't look to his height. You look to his heart. Those are the qualities that God wants and looks to us at. So you say, okay, well, well who does he choose? What, what kind of qualities? I wrote down an acronym there, the WHO. Just write these quickly. They're on the back side of the outline. I believe God looks to someone with a willing heart. He looks to someone with a humble heart. He looks to someone with an obedient heart. Willing, humble, and obedient. That's why I look, Pastor Scott talked about it, a couple hundred of us yesterday, going out in the streets of Stockton, going in South Stockton, North Stockton, different school districts, saying, how can we be blessing? You don't get to do that without being willing, humble, in obedient to what God gives you to do. You who leave this week, there'll be over a thousand people on our grounds. There'll be over probably 12, 13, 14, 1500, including all the children's building and everything that we have going on here. You go and you make a difference. You become people who are willing. You become people who are humble. You become people who are obedient, doing the little things. Someone who is asked to be just a cheese delivery boy, right? You just go, that may seem insignificant, but someone who's asked to be the cheese delivery boy, never realizing, as David did, that that little act of obedience would place David in a position where he would be used by God to slay the giant Goliath. Just a little thing. Insignificant as it seems. Saying yes, saying yes, saying yes. Never realizing that little act of obedience would lead to probably the most famous story, not in just the Bible, but in history, the story of David and Goliath. Next time you get discouraged, carry the cheese. Grab the Gouda and go, okay? Grab it and go. Be obedient. Let me end with one last story. In the mid-1400s, there was a, a wild guy in Florence, Italy, by the name of Augustinio de Duccio. Now, most of us probably haven't heard of Augustinio de Duccio. He's a small character in history, but let me tell you about his story. Um, Augustinio fancied himself as an artist, kind of as a ladies' man as well, but he became labeled also as a con man because he was run out of Florence for embezzling, supposedly, allegedly, embezzling money from a church directory. But nobody could prove it, and so a number of years later, he comes back into the city, and he buys, probably with the money that he had stole from the church years before, but he buys this huge 19-foot-high cube of stone from a local 
quarry, very expensive stone. I, I mean, we're talking 19, 19 feet high. Maybe this ceiling is 25 feet high, so, so most of the way up to the, the ceiling here. That's how big this, this cube of stone was that Augustinio buys. He says, I'm a great artist, and I'm going to prove it to everybody. I'm going to make one of the greatest sculptures of all time. And he, you know, attacks this cube and makes this expensive piece of stone unusable. He just maligns it. He gouges this huge V down from the top. He starts at the top, and he's trying to do some work going down, and it creates this huge V that is just maligned and broken and chipped and just does a horrible thing. He's all frustrated. He says it's the wrong shape. He had made it to the wrong shape. He says it's the wrong shape, and it takes on its, a reputation of its own. This huge marble stone um, becomes known around uh, Florence as the Augustinio lump. Everybody kind of knows it as such. And long after he dies, it languages there kind of in this, this, this building supply section of uh, this Florence quarry. Nobody wants it. Nobody would buy it. It was ruined. Uh, no sculpture could do anything out of it because he had gouged it so horribly when he was trying to do some work on it. Until decades later, in 1501, when a young sculptor comes along and says, you know, I have this great idea for this statue, but I don't have any money to buy a a, a cube of, of, uh, of marble. I can't afford the marble. And so he finds a friend who works at the quarry, and he says, can I have Augustinio's lump? Can, can I use that? The friend says, oh, absolutely. Nobody wants that thing. Here, take it. You can have it for free. And he gives it to him for free. And this young sculptor turns it upside down and out of that gouge now carves two muscular legs and carves the rest of the statue into the most famous piece of marble on the planet today, the statue of... David, because the sculpture was the genius Michelangelo. And this gouge now becomes the legs that are coming down. We didn't show you that part of the picture. I think most of you know why. We couldn't go right in there, okay? We just kind of left that alone, all right? But Michelangelo just carves this amazing... I had a gentleman come down after last service that he has been in, you know, this museum and just said, it is just amazing. There's this whole wing just dedicated to this. But what did it grow out of? It grew out of Augustinio's lump. Just as David's life was carved by the master. Just as your life is being carved by the master as well. Now you know the rest of David's story. Now you know the rest of Augustinio's story and where it ended up. Now you can look at your story as well. Because my prayer is that it's not just the outward things you look to. But God looks to the heart. God wants to use someone who is willing. God wants to use someone who is humble. God wants to use someone who is obedient. And as it says out of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God does not look to the things that man looks at. God looks to the what? The heart. I pray this week. You don't try and accomplish great things for God. You just have a heart that's open to what he wants to do in you. And you leave the rest of the story to him. Because then it'll be about his story. Let's open our hearts to him now in a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for an opportunity to share about David's life. The life that many of us probably don't 
remember or maybe have never known. God, we see him as a great ruler, as a great king, as a great servant, as a great man who fought Goliath, giant. But Lord, he was more than that. He came from a life in insignificance of being a family runt. And he became the great warrior you wanted him to be, the great leader you wanted him to be. But more than that, he became a man after your own heart. God, even with the wrong that he later did, the lying, the adultery, the betraying, the murdering, that's amazing how you can still look to him and say he was a man after your heart. And we have to believe that was because he had a willing heart. He had a humble heart. He had an obedient heart. But more than that, God, he, he had a repentant heart as well. A heart that said, God, I am sorry for what I have done. Let me live for you. Let my story be about your story. God, that's what we want. That's why we are here. And folks, maybe you were invited here today. Maybe you don't even understand why you ended up here. God knew. Because he wanted you to hear this amazing, amazing story. Maybe you're here for the thousandth time. Been a member for decades here at First Baptist. But maybe you really had never thought of how God works in our lives over the years. And makes us to be the person that he wants us to be. Not from perfection, but many times from a lump that's carved by the master's hand. First Baptist, may we be people who continue to say, God, use me. People with willing hearts, humble hearts, obedient hearts. God, even now as we worship, may you continue to shape our heart. Thank you. Thank you choosing us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.